0: Yeah, so last week I think we began, or we ended, um, by talking just a little bit about the centrality of the body in terms of our experience of place. And uh, we didn't get too much into that. In fact, I think in this particular section, we we just barely snuck in those last two quotes um, from the French philosopher Merleau-Ponty. But the the general gist of it, as sort of obvious as it may seem, is that we we navigate space uh, as embodied creatures, um, that we're not just sort of thinking things, making our way through space, but that we we have bodies and our bodies affect how we experience place. And I wanted to use that actually to sort of pivot into um, a little bit of a discussion today and uh, maybe beyond today uh, about the role of technology in sort of shaping our experience of place. Um, and and the reason I wanted to pivot off of the question of the body is because I, I do think that how we experience place, we can think of it in terms of um, uh, a function of our perception, how we, how we perceive reality and perception runs through the body, uh, not just in the sense that you know information from out there passes through our eyes and our ears and our noses into our body, but that uh, we, we navigate the, bo- the the world in a in, in, under the sort of unique conditions of the particular bodies that we have, and that that also ex- uh, impacts how we perceive the spaces before us, the places before us. And then when we think about um, the role that technology may play in shaping our experience of place, it it that role is in, in some uh, respects related to the way that it impacts perception. In other words, if we think of the body and the mind and the world as a kind of um, a, a loop of perception, right? So we perceive through our bodies. Our mind perceives the world through our bodies, right? They're all connected. There's a circuit, as it were. Uh, our tools can enter into that circuit, right? So that the circuit becomes something more like uh, tool, body, mind, world, right? And so the, the tools that we use to perceive the world uh, shape our, our perception of the world, right? Shape our experience of a place. And so that's why I thought it was important to um, among other reasons to, to just highlight again the centrality of the body to the experience of place. So having said that, what I have here um, are some things to kind of help us get at this question of how technology broadly understood. So I think part of um, what happens is that when you say technology, people immediately think about sort of the latest technology, right? Some, you know, this uh, a smartphone, for example, um, or maybe very cutting edge technology, like bioengineering or something of the sort. But um, thinking of technology very broadly and maybe even expanding it to just uh, include uh, the built environment, right? The human built environment, our material environment having an, an effect on how we um, relate to place for, for better or for worse, right? And so I want to take us back to 1985. This is the date in which uh, Joshua Meyerowitz's No Sense of Place came out and despite the title it actually isn't um, exactly all about place and what he is examining uh, is the advent of what he calls electronic media which in in his day what he's thinking of primarily are things like radio and especially television um, which are relatively uh, recent developments in in his lifetime right so if we think of television beginning to saturate American uh, homes around 1950. He's writing in 1985. That's just 30 years removed right from the advent of, um, of, of television not from its invention but when it becomes sort of widely popular. Um, just like we might say that today we're, we're about that far removed from the advent of the commercial internet so it's relatively recent. In any case Part of Merowitz's um, argument, and maybe I should say, say this by way of background just to sort of make sense of, of the claims he's gonna make here. So he's, he's combining the work of two particular scholars. One is Marshall McLuhan who is best known for his work as a student of new media in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, he's the one that gives us the expression, the global village. Uh, the medium is the message is sort of his famous line. And so he was very concerned with how new media, television, radio, but even before that, print, for example, how it affected what he thought of sort of human sense ratios, um, whether we are more visual or more auditory in the way we perceive the world, and, and the consequences that had for not just society, but for even um, the human psyche, right? So for, for our um, individual consciousness, he, he believed that new media shaped and formed human consciousness. And so that's one scholar that uh, Merowitz is drawing on. And the other is a sociologist named Irving Goffman who wrote uh, perhaps the, the work that he was most famous for is where he proposes sort of this theory of, of human identity based on this idea of the stage. So it's a dramaturgical sort of theory of human identity. And his, uh, his general thesis is that uh, all, of hum- all, all of our experiences are social interactions are a matter of front stages and back stages. And a front stage is a place uh, of more conscious performance where we're involved in the work of what he calls impression management. So we're always sort of thinking what kind of impression are we giving off? Uh, And we we carefully guard uh, the kinds of impressions that we give depending on the particular setting that we're at. And then the backstage is essentially the place where you can relax. right? You feel a little bit more at ease, you're not quite so involved in the work of impression management. And so he's using actually very concrete examples. Um, So so for example, the wait staff that enters uh, the the seating area of a restaurant, they act in a certain way, speak in a certain way, they have very um, well-defined rules that they abide by in order to fit the role that they are performing in that front stage environment. Cross the doors into the kitchen, and it's an entirely different story, right? And I don't know, maybe you guys have a similar sort of thing going on there, right? That threshold, right? You're you're one way uh, with at the bar with your your customers. You're another way, obviously behind. And there's nothing particularly wrong about that, right? It's just this is the way it is. Um, and there are all sorts of different um, spaces that would shape the kind of performance that we put on, right? So. Uh, if you think, Goffman was writing in the mid-20th century, so the mid-20th centuries is very um, clearly defined line between the workplace and the home, right? And so, you dress up in a certain way to go into the workplace, it has certain mores and manners and habits, and then you come home and that's a very different environment and you, there are different aspects of your personality that come out. Um, and so, his, his idea then is that you know, our identity is always a sort of calibrated performance. Uh, that sometimes has these front stage moments and then sometimes has these backstage moments. And so what Mayerowitz does is he takes McLuhan and he takes um, Goffman's work and he tries to synthesize them to understand what electronic media uh, has done to us, right? Uh, and and that has done to us is too you know, a strong way of putting it, but, but how it is influencing and shaping us. And his, his sense is that part of what electronic media has done is it has blurred some of these distinctions. The distinction between home and work, uh, the distinction between family life and work life. In other words, um, there are events that used to happen at a, at a distance from us or in, in private spaces, blurring the private and public distinction, for example. Um, and so that—that that what's happening is we, we, we have a, a loss of a sense of place. He, me- he actually has a pun on that. Not a pun, but he, he means it in two senses. Both in the sense that geographically, spatially, right, with regards to your physical presence, um, you find yourself maybe in two places at one time, right, occupying two places in different modes, of course. Uh, but then also in that social sense, right, what is my place in society? And, and based on Goffman's work with this idea that in certain places you are gonna act a certain way, what happens when the lines between those places blur it kind of throws you into a little bit of a confusion as to how exactly you should act, right? Uh, A more recent uh, sociological term that's used for this is context collapse. And this was used to describe sort of the experience of social media, um, where where in social media, the context collapse may mean that uh, on a particular platform, you have work friends and church friends and high school friends and your grandmother, and they're all sort of potentially your audience at the same time and it's, it collapses those different contexts in such a way that you're now like, eh, I don't know, this is you know, more fraught than it needs to be. Um, and so we calibrate, you know, have a harder time calibrating our performance. And so that's not uh, necessarily a, a uniquely digital phenomenon. Merowitz argues that something like this has already been going on with the advent of electronic media. Um, so let me pause there. Does that make sense? Any questions arise just from that basic little summary? Before we kind of read these two passages okay right. well good, glad it's crystal clear. Um, first, first paragraph here from Merowitz. he says, "I have argued that electronic media, especially television, have had a tremendous impact on Americans' sense of place. Electronic media have combined previously distinct social settings, moved the dividing line between." private and public behavior towards the private. Let me pause to kind of make sure those two lines, there, there's a series of three things here. So first of all, combined previously distinct social settings. So as we said, um, the, it blurs the line between things like work and home uh, in a way that makes it difficult to know what role exactly you're supposed to be playing. Um, and and think, of two, think of this too even in the way that uh, in, in a political setting, or even in terms of the life of celebrities, right? Electronic media made it possible to enter into their worlds in a more intimate way, right? It brings them closer to you in a way that's difficult. It it then becomes difficult to maintain an aura of, what's the word I'm looking for here, Um, even an aura of authority or an aura of a certain kind of dignity that might have attached to political office where there's there's something um, that that's very intimate about appearing on television and and the way in which television then sort of intruded into um, what were ostensibly more private settings and required more of our private private experiences to become sort of content for public presentation. So that's the second thing, moving the dividing line between private and public behavior toward the private. In other words, making more of our lives public. And then weaken the relationship between social, institu- social, social situations and physical places. In other words, it, it was um, less clear the connection between having a particular kind of social situation being attached to a particular place, where that situation might now manifest itself in various places. The logic, he goes on to say, the logic underlying situational patterns of behavior in a print-oriented society, therefore, has been radically subverted. Many Americans no longer seem to know their place, and again, not in that pejorative way that it's used especially in racial context, but more about sort of knowing where you are, knowing the role you play, knowing how to navigate the social space. So more more and more excuse me, many Americans may no longer seem to know their place because the traditionally interlocking components of place have been split apart by electronic media. That that idea there is one I, that I especially want to sort of hold on to. This idea that there were the, the body and our experience were always in a particularly well defined place, and that these interlocking components now, in a sense, have been split apart by electronic media. And he goes on. He says, when, whenever excuse me, wherever one is now, at home, at work, or in a car, one may be in touch and tuned in. And when you consider that he is saying this in 1985, and how much more that is the case, so what I would say is that what the trends he is identifying here have continued to accelerate, right? That it is more the case now that we might say, whether we're at home, at work, or in a car, we may be in touch and tuned in, uh, obviously thanks to the internet. In fact, we, we, are, we can be in touch and tuned in virtually anywhere. Now, and there are, and there are changes, of course, because to say tuned in, He's thinking largely, of course, of the fact that you can turn on the radio, right, and you can hear things being broadcast to you. Um, but we are we are tuned in in that way, not just to the radio, um, to countless sources of information. But also we are we are um, broadcasters ourselves in a sense, right? We're not just passive receivers of communication. We can reach out. We can communicate, um, and become active in that process as well. But the bottom line here is that I think these are trends that obviously had um, begun already by the mid-20th century and have, in a sense, only continued to accelerate. Right. Now, let me read, um, actually, I think what I'd like to do is skip to the third quote here, and then we can come back to the, to the, to the second quote by Meroids. This was by a Chinese scholar named Yifu Tuan. And he, uh, I think this was written in the, might have been in the late 70s, and I forget the date right now. And so there's an article called Place, Space, Ethnicity, Cosmos, How to Be More Fully Human. And he writes that in the past, news that reached me from afar was old news. Now, with instantaneous transmission, all news is contemporary. I live in the present, surrounded by present time, whereas not so long ago, the present where I am was an island surrounded by the pasts that deepened with distance, okay. now, the idea there is that you don't have to go very far back in human history to hit the place where news could travel no faster than a horse, right? right. And so, there there was a relationship, there was a correlation between distance and time and the 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 the, the way in which news could reach you from afar, right? So the the farther an event was from you, the longer it took to get to you,? Right? Uh, the, it, much in the same way that we think now of light from a star reaching us, right? And we sort of observe, oh, that, that light left that star x-million years ago. And so we're actually looking into the past when we see the light in the night sky. So much in the same way, when news arrived to you, it, it wasn't happening now. Right? In the way that when you open your phone and you check on Twitter and see what's trending, you have like a, a real-time awareness of what is unfolding immediately right now in Japan, or immediately right now in France, or immediately right now across the street. It, it doesn't matter, right? Geography does not determine your awareness of what is happening, right? So you are not, you are not uh, limited by your embodied place With regards to what you can be aware of, Um, the you know kind of classic example of this that I always think of is the fact that uh, the last battle of the War of 1812 was fought after the peace treaty had been signed, as you may remember from some high school history class, right? Uh, Because it took several weeks for news to travel the Atlantic and to reach the United States that that the war was over, and so in that same way, there was a, a relationship of sorts, right? What I'm trying to describe here is that there's a kind of relationship between body, place, and time where place mattered. Right, It, w- you, it wasn't indifferent. You know, it, it doesn't matter today where you are. You can find out about any place in the world at, at an, a, a degree of instantaneity that would have been unthought of. And so that is part of what I think Merowitz is trying to describe here with regards to the, the splintering right, or the splitting apart of the interlocking relationship uh, that was involved in, in a body in place. So now, let me pause there and, and see if, see what you think, or if you have any comments or questions along these lines. And again, part of what I'm trying to get at, maybe this is, should have made this clear at the beginning, is, is trying to understand some of the forces that sort of condition our experience of place, particularly some of these um, factors that are more technological in nature, and how they have, um, changed the relationship between, between body and place, and how this integrated fabric of body and place no longer quite holds. Right? Something that's quite evident every time you're on a Zoom meeting as just another example. Right? that there is a, you're, you know, To ask the question where are you when you're on a Zoom meeting uh, allows for multiple answers, possible answers, reasonable answers in a way that uh, would, would not have been the case before that's sort where of technology allowed you to communicate instantaneously over, over distance, right? So it, it, it changes the experience of place to some degree. All right, now I'll we'll pause. Questions, comments, observations?
1: I'm curious, if, and, and maybe this is not the right one, well, but we're going to push this further. Uh, in the sense of, I think this is kind of a useful observation, but I'm thinking it almost feels dated uh, in the sense that now with sorting algorithms and all this, you don't see the whole world, right? No, like you don't yeah. know what's going on in Europe at all. No one cares, right? Like the new Trump news, you get the U.S. news, and anything that pertains to U.S. news, right? Is Boris Johnson better? I don't know. Right? He had Corona. He's uh, good, Boris. Yeah, I'm sure. sure yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, I yeah. right? Like it seems like it, it, with this third quote, where it brought all the world closer, or I'm living in the constant present. I feel like we're back in the island. Where, the, like the, yeah. the
0: things that don't matter fade away, like the right. world is gone. So yeah, and I think I don't think that uh, Tuan would have said that you're sort of simultaneously aware of everything, right, that's going on. So I think you're right that it's never it's never the case that you're sort of aware of everything, right? It's always being filtered to some degree, whether it's by the editors at the newspaper, you know, back in the day or. Um, the kind of algorithmic moderation that is happening on the social media platform that you rely on to sort of be aware of these sorts of things. Um, so it's never, yeah, quite anywhere. And, and there are different kinds of islands, if you will, that we, um, that we can craft. Uh, but I think it's, it still nonetheless remains the case that the, the temporal relationship so, you know, maybe you're not quite aware of what's happening in, in England at the moment um, or, you know, Ukraine or whatever but that you can be aware of what's happening in New York. Wherever your attention is focused, you're aware of that now, right? Yeah, that's right. You're not aware of it You know, in, in, a, in a week, you're aware of it presently. Now there's a ton of stuff you're not going to be aware of, but that the natural relationship between distance and time and awareness, in other words, that there was a, a kind of wholeness to your experience of place, that there, were, there was a, um, a boundary, so to speak, that was not only geographic but even sort of temporal. Um, that if you lived in um, if you lived in Gainesville, right, in, 18- in 1875 or whenever Gainesville was founded, I have no idea. Um, the, the experience of Gainesville was locked in in a way that it isn't now. Sure. Right. Um, there was there was a there was a word here that I'm searching for that's not quite coming to mind. Right. But there was a kind of uh, integrity to the place. And I don't mean integrity in the positive moral sense. I just mean that it's, there's a wholeness to it uh, that is a little different than what we experience today. And I think actually this next paragraph from Merowitz kind of gets at this a little bit. Um, so he says, 19th century life entailed isolated. That's the word I was looking for. Right? Many, uh, many isolated situations and sustained many isolated behaviors and attitudes. The current merging of situations does not give us a sum of what we had before, but rather new synthesized behaviors that are qualitatively different. If we celebrated, and this is an example that I think is helpful, if we celebrate our child's wedding in an isolated situation where it is the sole experience of the day, then our joy may be unfounded. But when on our way to the wedding we hear over the car radio of a devastating earthquake or the death of a popular entertainer Or the political assassination of uh, the assassination of a political figure, we not only lose sight—that should say not, not no—we not only lose sight, uh, lose our ability to rejoice fully, but also our ability to mourn deeply. The electronic combination of many different styles of interaction from distinct regions leads to new middle region, what he calls middle region behaviors, that while containing elements of formerly distinct roles, are themselves new behavior patterns. With new expectations and emotions, and I want to say that that I, I'm offering this in a at, at this point in sort of a merely descriptive sense. Right, this is not to say it was easier then or better then and worse now or harder now. Uh, rather to sort of say, okay, there's a there's something that's changed here that might throw some light on our present experience, and to just sort of make this descriptive effort can sometimes be clarifying. And so in reading this uh, this these middle lines, for example, about you know, being on your way to a child's wedding, in, immediately what I think of is the, you know, it's like playing a kind of emotional Russian roulette Anytime you open social media. Um, and I think I'm gonna store that line away because that's pretty good, right? Because you just don't know, right? It, it may be that right now somebody has died and you know, as soon as you get up from class, you're gonna open your phone, it's gonna be trending, and it's gonna impact you, right? You, it will have a psychological impact on you. Um, Maybe it's something that's happened uh, in a faraway place that in, in a previous era would not have reached you maybe for several days, several weeks. Maybe you would have become aware of it next year, if at all. Um, but now it intrudes, right? And intrudes, I realize, is a pejorative term, but it, it comes into, right? It, it comes into your experience um, in a different way so that your experience, and I think this is the bottom line, isn't simply anchored in your place, right? Your, your place now is penetrated by all sorts of things that are not happening here. They're happening now. And it's almost as a as now becomes more important than here. The multiple nows all around the world come into your experience, whether they are here or now. right? So that temporality takes on um, a, a more interesting role in our lives than our, our emplacement, our geographic emplacement. right? I think about this in terms even of, um, of something like mass media in the mid-20th century, where you, know, you would have had uh, very popular television programs that you can count on some large segment of the population having watched. right? And then you, it yields what uh, you know, used to be called water cooler conversations. You know everybody around. The water cooler at work wants to know who killed JR. Anybody have any idea what I'm talking about? Good. Uh, Dallas. It was a fam- famous show in the 1980s, and this was one of the first sort of cliffhanger things that I already talked about. We killed JR. Um, so don't worry about it, I, I just dated myself. Um, and, um, and so you, you have now, even uh, on social media, the experience that it, you, you never quite know, let me see if I can capture the kind of thing I'm talking about here. Um, I mean, ordinarily, you don't really know who's going to see what you post anyway, because it's sort of algorithmically um, conditioned, right? But, and then there's also the question of temporality, right? So, you know, if I tweet something now, um, I don't know who's on right now, and maybe they'll come on later, but it's going to be, been pushed so far down the timeline, they won't see it. Uh, But then there are these things that happen, like the debate, right? Uh, Where you realize that that everybody's online, right? Everybody's just trying to, you know, say just the right thing, you know, chasing virality, whatever. Um, and you have this sense of, of a community forming, but it doesn't form in place, it forms in time. It, it, it is forming just because everybody is at the right, not at the right place, but everybody's at the right time, and the place is irrelevant to that. Right? So it's a way then of trying to sort of describe the relative significance of place versus time in this case with regards to ordering our experience. So in many, in a lot of these forces, I think what they've generated is, is less of a dependence upon the particular shape of your place for the course of your lived experience. Right? Does that make sense? And the follow-up question to that, then, of course, would be the, the more um, evaluative question. Like, OK, so what difference does that make? Right? What are the consequences of that, for better or for worse? And I'm, I'm happy to entertain any any thoughts you might have along those lines.
2: I think with the Twitter example, I mean we're seeing it today where people are from six, seven, ten years ago finding tweets or Facebook posts that people have posted, and now we're we're judging them on their, their past selves, which that could be like the state of who they are, but also they're like could be a different person as well. Um, and I think with that, itching
3: Yeah, I
0: mean, that's, that opens this question of, like, you know, digitized memory and how it can be weaponized against you and the, the kind of consistency assumed by these profiles. Right, no, yeah, those are all sorts of, of interesting questions as well, right, which is, I think, part of the reason why a lot of people are just auto-deleting their social media feeds uh, out of a uh, measure of wisdom, Yeah.
3: Some sense of catching up to what was happening i remember like being in kindergarten first grade having it on the tv uh, in my yeah. classroom and and there was a sense of catching up to the first one and then everyone watching collectively yeah. the second yeah. and that if it, it did give a sense i think nationwide that we all watched the second one together and that it was happening to everyone at the same time and that we faced some sense of, like, helplessness, that we weren't there and there was nothing for us to do, but that we felt the responsibility because we were almost transmitted through technology to what was happening. Um, And so I think, generally speaking, it, it makes me feel as if, because i know so many things even just in the united states about what's going on in in different places there's a sense that because i know there's a responsibility that when you see that it's that that you're in it now that that you have the context and so i think it takes almost some like moral responsibility for what are you doing about all these things everywhere? When, like, I think the central call to Christianity is to love your neighbor, which is, neighbor is this, like, I think a temporal or whatever sort of thing where, like, this is the person that you see, this is a person that you come in contact with. But I think that the explosion of, like, knowing everything that's going on gives me a sense that I'm not doing what I need to
0: Right. No, that's a very good point. Um, you know, one of the interesting things that you know, I discovered is that something very like what you just said was expressed as early as the mid-1800s uh, by Soren Kierkegaard, philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who I think at the time sort of reflecting upon, because the, the first technological breakthrough along these lines is the telegraph, which of course now seems like ancient to us. And you know, my gosh, you know, you're tapping Morse code. But it's the first time that news could travel um, more or less, not quite, but more or less instantaneously across long distances. And so it generated what we think of as the news. I mean, we we talk unreflectingly about the news as if it's something people have always sort of cared about in the same way we do. When in fact, the news is to some degree a product of these technologies and what they make possible in terms of awareness and and transfer of information. And so, you know, Kierkegaard and his, you know, generally cranky way, um, sort of reflected upon the fact that you know his newspaper now had news about all these other places that were totally unrelated to him, to his life, and to, to what was happening. But, but I think there was a serious moral point along the lines that you identified, which is that it raises the question, what can I do? right? What can I do about this thing happening across the globe right now, or even across the state right now? And And there is, I think, something potentially um, challenging about that. Because one response to that might be to just sort of throw up our hands and say, I can't do anything, right? And to, and to sort of have a sense of powerlessness that overcomes you because there's just too much and it's, you're, it's not at all clear how you can do anything about it. Um, and there is a sense that, in knowing of it, you, you maybe feel a certain responsibility, like, this seems really bad, I, I should do something. And, and there's a, a natural impulse to maybe seek to do something, but no obvious route by which you can do it. Um, no obvious path of action that is available to you. And and maybe even the question of whether it, you ought to do something, right? I mean, depending on what kind of thing we're talking about, um, you know, to what degree should people unrelated to that place be involved in these sorts of questions, right? Is there something you know, uh, about the unique set of circumstances, the context that those who are truly there are more familiar with, that are more complex than what we hear about, and thus our interventions become naive and misguided and counterproductive. Um, But yeah, again, more generally though, this this demoralizing sense of, you know, there are too many problems, I I can't do anything about anything, and you're left with a general feeling of, of cynicism, almost, right, yeah. I mean does that make sense? Does that resonate I don't know?
4: Can we like place up regulate? Like how much news we got? Regulate is a
0: great word, yeah.
4: And now we have to self regulate that?
0: word regulate, because that actually, I feel like I've been kind of searching for that word, and that's right. In, in the situation that um, Yifu Tuan describes, place was inadvertently just acting as a regulator, right? And and now, without that, um, it's as if, you know, sort of gates, the floodgates are open, right? and it's all kind of flooding us, and we need to figure out some other way of, um, you know, triage is a word that sometimes is used, right? to do information triage to sort of figure out what do I need to know about? What ought I to know about? What do you do with this information, et cetera? So yeah, it's a good good way of, of putting it. Brian, are you? Yeah,
1: I, I I appreciate where we're going. I want to push back a little bit uh, with respect to thinking, trying to put myself in I, like in the more isolated environment, uh, in the sense that I don't know how aware I'd be, but if I'm living, you know, wherever in 1700, and news travels slow, and so everything, whatever news I'm getting is. Further back is the past. Uh, my only grip on reality, as it is, is where I am. Yeah. And so when I hear about a flood that happened two weeks ago, like, well, surely they've addressed it by now, right? Like, I, I, I'm not sure that I would feel less helpless then than I would now. Uh, now, certainly, I'm, I'm aware of far more problems now. Mm-hmm. Uh, All right the fact that I can wire money, right? That, that, that resources aren't uh, fixed is a thing. Uh, but I guess with, the, with, with this sort of shrinking of the world or whatever, right? Like on, on the one hand, our grip, our grip of reality, the world as it stands now, though mediated, is more complete. Uh, and I think we have more power than we ever did to do something, not that we might not feel that way, But I can't, I can't imagine it felt more empowering back then. But uh, but again, War of 18th, about New Orleans is is a real example. Like, we did not need to fight this. Right. Um,
3: uh, So. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that for me, it's a sense of overwhelm. When, like, it's not just the powerlessness, it's powerlessness across the world it's that now usually there is some sort of route of helping like as soon as there's a hurricane there is some sort of fund set up that I can wire money to it's like but it's like what is mine to do sure I think that's the question what is mine to do do I need to be do I need to have hands in helping because if I If every moment of grieving or mourning over something happening leads me to want to act, which is a very Christian thing to feel, when do I say yes to that? When is it not mine to do? Um, And that question can arise hundreds of times a day if I'm actually looking at all of the things that I could be consuming. (laughs)
0: Right, so it just raises more decision points, yeah. as it were. Right?
3: And more feeling that we're involved in places that we're not living. Yes. That we have, we can have a level of involvement that's not actually physical, but mysteriously non-physical.
0: Right. I mean, that is an interesting word, right? Involvement. Um, because involvement... Say one is involved with something. I mean, one in one sense, it it raises the question of whether that involvement has been solicited, right? Whether that involvement is welcome, um, whether that involvement entails responsibility, whether that involvement just becomes a kind of voyeurism, right? And so, um, yeah, that's that's an interesting word that. Kind of raises some, some good questions about about the nature of that that relationship that awareness what, what that what's generated there is there a detachment so is, is the flip side of this awareness of so much more of the world um, and maybe not even in terms of what we are called to act or not act upon, but just uh, you know on the one hand there's sort of the effect um, the effective consequences, right? In you know, other words, the emotional consequences. Um, I feel like I, that's not quite as pertinent, but I, you know, want to mention. You know, there's the phrase we use is um, information overload. You know, just feel overwhelmed by the information. I think it's also the case that we feel kind of um, sort of emotional overload, right? This sort of roller coaster of emotions that we're put on constantly. In the way that, um, in this what now seems like a very primitive way, Marowitz describes. Um, that you know you just happen to be driving and you hear this news of something that happened all of a sudden now that enters into kind of the, the emotional balance of your day or whatever. Um, so setting setting those sort, sorts of things about aside is this greater awareness? does it imply or necessitate or or, or somehow lead to um, an attenuated experience of physical place right? In other words, does it mean that because I am more aware of places out there that I am somehow less aware less involved in the place I am literally, right? Is there any kind of relationship there? Yeah.
1: I think the place I am literally, the, di- the radius got bigger. Yeah. Right? As opposed to, um, so like, I, I think uh, the easy example is like politics right now. Like people don't, are not nearly as concerned about the politics of their state as they are the politics of the country even you know, right. Their state and local politics should affect yeah. like them more, right? right. And so, uh, America is a terrible place because those kind of people live here, even though I'm in X state and there's none of them, here, <laughs> right? Right. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I think, I think yes, but I think I, I, I yeah, I, I did, what my place is is bigger versus which obviously means that my more physical environs are a small percentage of my place. My thought.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting way of putting it. Like are there, but are there, would you say that there are sort of qualitative uh, gradations involved in that expansion of place, right? I mean, is, is it, it, does it still mean something different to say that I am here in Gainesville as opposed to saying I'm here in the United States because I'm aware of what's going on in the whole of the country? I don't have the answer to that question, I'm just asking, yeah.
1: It feels like literally, yes, because I can see Gainesville, I can. Yeah, know, Or I can touch Gainesville, maybe I can see the rest of the United States. It
0: would feel like there's a diffusion, right, that the wider the geographic circle that I think of as my place, and I think there are, by the way, I should say, I think there are legitimate ways in which we can think of sort of concentric circles of place, right? So to know my place um, here at the study center, Right, to know my place in Gainesville, to know my place as a Floridian, as an American, as a global citizen. Right, and, and if we think of even in sort of theological or even religious sense, to sort of have a cosmic sense of my place. You know? I mean, certainly you know, in the Middle Ages, there would have been a, a very concrete way in which we would have had a cosmic sense of your place. Um, and so it would seem as if, just keeping it, not cosmic, but just maybe local and national maybe, the more um, widespread my circle, the more diffuse my presence. And maybe I don't know if presence is a valuable word in in this context, right? So what kind of presence obtains where my body is relative to the kind of presence that obtains where I can sort of virtually participate, right, where I'm virtually aware, virtually, and I'm using virtually here to t- any of the technological mediated ways that we might get there. Right? And is there, you know, is, there a unique, is there a presence that is unique to the body relative to the way that we might be present in the affairs of Northern California during wildfire season?
3: living a 24-hour day and how much I can pay attention to. But I feel like technology tells us a different story, that we can pay attention to everything, and that it's asking us to. Mm-hmm. It's asking us to give our attention to the things it's presenting us with, which are often things that are not in our sphere, in our mm-hmm. place, in our city, school, Uh, So yeah, like you're saying, I think it asks of us more than we can possibly give and then takes away a lot of the attention that we might be giving or paying to the things right in front of us.
2: It's interesting that uh, uh, we're talking as if our focus on the national level is bad, uh, which feels compelling to me, when at the same time there has been historically a mindset that we should be more focused on the world level, that Americans are too ignorant of what else is going on in the world, which also kind of sounds like there's something to it. Uh, I'm not sure how to... I, at this point, I think that we get too much world news, but it does seem like I do see the point of view that there's something arrogant about you if you are not paying attention to what's going on in the whole world. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm always struck the only time I ever hear about news in Africa is when I'm listening to the BBC. Right, right, yeah.
2: It just feels like there's something superior about the BBC because it's telling you about <laughs> all of humanity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: and it raises a question, right? Because there is an implicit. So being well informed is a taken for granted value, I think, yeah. in our society, right? That you, you, you there, there's a kind of moral responsibility to be well informed. Mm-hmm. Um, And so, yeah, I guess the question is, is there? Uh, Or what does well-informed entail, right? Um, And then what are the, you know, what are the distinctions among this sort of classic, um, you know, tripartite division between information, knowledge, and wisdom kind of thing, you know? Mm -hmm. So there are various ways of construing the idea of being well-informed. Yeah. so I get th- I get what you're saying. There are, there are different values that seem to be at play here, but the default has tended to be that, yeah, you need to you need to maximize your informational inputs. You know, become yeah. a- aware and as knowledgeable as possible about as much as possible.
2: Yeah, actually, that reminds me of when C.S. Lewis says that the world traveler, in some degree, knows other cultures and is therefore less susceptible to the the yeah. false assumptions of his own place yeah. in the same way the historian is less susceptible to the assumptions of his own age. Uh, I guess I think there is a way of consuming uh, learning about out there that makes you a wiser person, um, although maybe it's not a given that that happens just because you're watching BBC. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's um, well,
1: a. Yeah, yeah. I I like say. Like, and yeah. like, what you, like, what determines your well-informedness? Yeah. Right? Like, I mean, you like, we don't decide what we see, right? It, like, it's it's whoever. Right? Like Like, we can decide what sources of information to which we go, mm-hmm. but those are curated, right? Right. Whether it's by uh, what gets ratings or like what someone deemed important and worth knowing. Right. Uh, Gatekeepers. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And so. Uh, when, when I, when, so like taking that with like, I'd like diffusing your identity, um, like I think uh, again whatever two hundred years ago or whatever, uh, my my sense of my concentric circle as an American was creedal, right? This we are American. This is what we stand for, and I have no idea what's going on in New York, but yes. they stand for that too. Yeah. Whereas what's happening in Gainesville, I am I am living that. Yeah. Whereas now other people, like our identity, we're giving it away, or it, it other people are shaping it. Uh, because if, if I'm going to be well-informed by reading The Economist or BBC, I'm letting the editors of The Economist decide what it means to be well-informed, mm-hmm. and whatever agenda they have, if they have one, or everyone has one, sure. or All right. whatever. So you're, you're losing some of, and because I'm giving attention to that, I'm not giving attention to where, like, mm-hmm. what's going on around me what I'm living, to some extent. And so I think we are giving away ourselves, uh, or letting other people almost decide.
0: Like losing autonomy, as it were, right?
1: Uh, and again, as technology has gotten better at, uh, or psychology or whatever, knowing how to push our buttons too, right? Like so, we're losing control. But also, I think also to some extent, self, like I will be outraged about this. Here's how I'll present it and you'll be a good outraged person. Yeah,
0: right, right. right. Now, we're we're over time here. So let me just make this observation and then we can come back to some of this next week perhaps. But um, part of what I've been thinking about lately is that for what seems to me like the majority of human history, the body has just simply been the focus of human experience. Right, mm-hmm. and that what part of what we are experiencing, I think, what we've been sort of describing to some degree, is how that is becoming increasingly less the case, right, and what the consequences of that will be, I think, are pretty pretty significant. Um, okay, all right, well, good, good discussion, and um, we'll see you guys, see you guys next week.